Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, June 8th, we're studying Jeremiah chapter 14, verses 1 to 22. The Lord gives his faithful prophet a word to speak to Judah concerning the drought that was afflicting the land, even as Jeremiah cries out to the Lord concerning the false prophets who are afflicting the people. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us returning guest, Pastor Andrew Jago. Pastor Jago serves at Bethany Lutheran Church in Alexandria, Virginia. Pastor Jago, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thank you, and thank you for having me. Glad to have you with us again, Pastor Jago. As we get started into Jeremiah chapter 14 today, what kind of context should we know about the prophet, his ministry, his book that helps us for this chapter? Jeremiah is a prophet in the 6th century, right before Judah's destruction, right before the temple and the city and all those things that were visible signs of God's favor are taken away, and the people are sent into exile. In this first section of his book, we have all the prophecies and writings before that destruction, and we're like in the middle of that first section here with chapter 14. So what what kinds of things have we seen from Jeremiah so far? You know, what's going on in his ministry, and, and what will we encounter in this chapter? Well, Jeremiah begins his ministry under King Josiah, uh, a very faithful king who begins, a, I like to call it a reformation in his, uh, in his time, where uh, the book, the Torah, the book of the law, is found, possibly long forgotten. The people are rending their hearts as they hear uh, the words that are there and how far they have come from God's will for their lives and his word. Um, here in chapter 14, uh, we, we just had the, in chapter 7 the temple sermon, which I think is really going to connect to this chapter as well. Uh, Jeremiah, a very unpopular sermon, I imagined, uh, being in front of the temple and saying, what you're doing is useless. This is just an outward show of religion. You can't just come here and say, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, and expect that God will have favor on you when you go do what you want with your life. And uh, here in Jeremiah 14, like I said, there's, it really connects to the blessings and curses that we see in the end of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 28 you know, begins with the blessings, and there's blessings for when people keep the covenant that fall not only on them, but on the land as well. And that's also true for the curses. In verse 24, Deuteronomy 28, I like this as a, setting the stage for, uh, as we look at, uh, begin to look at uh, chapter 14 of Jeremiah. So again, Deuteronomy 28, 24, the Lord will make the rain of your land powder. From heaven, dust, dust shall come down until you are destroyed. That's one of the curses for breaking covenant with God in Deuteronomy. And I think that sets the stage nicely for Jeremiah 14. Yeah, the, the curses, the blessings that are there in chapter 28 certainly apply to Jeremiah 14. And, and in much of Jeremiah, those are, are in the background because over and over again, Jeremiah is telling the people, you've broken the covenant. God has done what he said he would. He's kept his promise, but you've broken the covenant. And so they do see those covenant curses come down. And the, the big one in view here is this drought. So beginning in Jeremiah 14, verse 1. 
the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah concerning the drought. And I'll just pause there, Pastor Jago, because that, again, does set the context in terms of this drought and the the place of drought within the the society of Israel you know, in the Old Testament. Well, a couple of questions, I guess. One, I, I did a little reading and I couldn't discover anything. I'm curious if you did this drought that's there. Do we have any idea of like when it might have happened during Jeremiah's reign? And then more broadly speaking, what are some of, I mean, what's going, when people in Israel see a drought, what are they thinking, especially theologically? Yeah, where to place this? So when people read Jeremiah straight through, it's not necessarily chronological. I mean, it's close, but it bounces around in time. Uh, so Baruch probably put these thematically, you know, in, in order. And uh, I, I did look at that, but I had a hard time placing the exact date yeah. of when this drought could be or when Jeremiah was even preaching this or had this dialogue with God. It's right after, I mean, a few chapters before, we're in the time of Josiah. So maybe that's, you know, around the time. But is this before they found the Torah? Is this after? I, I'm sorry, I don't really know. Yeah. Um, so when we're not told that explicitly, you know, that's those are the times where I tell the congregation, well, here's Pastor Jago's best guess, or here's, you know, some speculation. But we do know that droughts play a significant role, you know, in, in that climate, in that time. And even today, you know, there's rainy season, there's dry season. Um, a good parallel, uh, we have a lot of uh, members here from West Africa who know all about that in Liberia. Um, during the rainy season, when the rains come down, you catch the rain, you put it in cisterns. Jeremiah mentions that here in the beginning of chapter 14. And that takes you through the dry seasons that you have. Uh, and then if, but, but if the whole year is a dry season, if this is something like, uh, say, the time of Elijah in First Kings, where God withheld the rain, uh, or in the time of Ruth, you know, which sends Ruth and her family you know, out of the land and, and into Moab, um, or in the times of the patriarchs, uh, you know, where uh, there was a severe drought that sent people to Egypt for grain. You know, so all those times, it's interesting how drought and the rain plays a significant part in Israel's history, and it's also seen as a sign of God's favor. It's especially important when the prophets use that as an image of God's blessing, because the people at that time, both in the 7th century B.C. and 6th century, it's a main message of the prophets that, no, you don't go to these other gods for your blessing and, and to have the rainfall. God is the only one who controls that. It's a very much a, a first commandment kind of issue. Certainly. Yeah. I mean, we're going to see toward the end of our text, even a little bit of, of a note of that about how, you know, the Lord alone, only Yahweh is the one who can actually send the rain. So mm -hmm. whenever this was, and that was the same thing that I found was there's no mm -hmm. real consensus on, on when this drought might have been. But, you know, as we know from Jeremiah, a lot of his ministry as we read it is not always very specifically datable, but this does seem to certainly be pre-exile, as you were saying, and, and, you know, maybe during the ministry of Josiah or anyways. So, but the drought as a, as a event within the history of Israel is a very common thing. And so it becomes the opportunity now for some mourning, some lamenting, some confession, some prayer, which I think is, is how the Lord would use droughts throughout his people's history. You, you mentioned several, and I, I think consistently when the Lord sends a drought, he's doing it to bring his people to repentance. Yeah, it's very much a wake-up call, like a lot of the things that, uh, that happen that are 
well, like plagues, for instance. Well, we'll get into that a little later, I think. Yeah, that's right. So let's let's see the reaction to this drought that's mentioned here in verse 1. Now we're picking up at verse 2. Judah mourns, and her gates languish. Her people lament on the ground, and the cry of Jerusalem goes up. Her nobles send their servants for water. They come to the cisterns. They find no water. They return with their vessels empty. They are ashamed and confounded and cover their heads. Because of the ground that is dismayed, since there is no rain on the land, the farmers are ashamed. They cover their heads. Even the doe in the field forsakes her newborn fawn because there is no grass. The wild donkeys stand on the bare heights. They pant for air like jackals. Their eyes fail because there is no vegetation. That's verses 2 through 6 of chapter 14, Pastor Jago. This really sounds like a, a description of what's happening in the drought. What are some of the things that stand out to you here? Well, it, it divides up so nicely. Just like in the book of Lamentations, Jeremiah's Lamentations, you know, there, there's a nice, uh, especially in the, the middle chapter, chapter 3, there's a nice three-verse rhythm. And here we have a, a, a nice, the number three, I think, is pretty significant. Uh, you have Judah and the city in the beginning of this, and then a nice <laughs> beginning with verse 4, you know, the, the creation, and then 5 and 6, the animals. Um so, you know, there's a nice division, there's a nice um, d dividing up that you can see here. When you look at the words and the language, it's just, it's devastating and beautiful at the same time. Again, just like the Lamentations of Jeremiah. Um, I like how he puts poetically in the in verse 2, her gates languish. So the gates kind of represent the city, and the city itself mourns with the people. Um, and why are the people suffering? Why is the ground suffering? Why are the animals suffering? You follow the word no in this section. No water in verse 3, verse 4, no rain, verse 5, no grass, verse 6, no vegetation. That concludes uh, each thought just about uh, in, these, in those four verses after being introduced there in chapter 2. I mean, it's just very artful. Um, so, you know, the Jeremiah, I think throughout his book, if people haven't experienced this, just want to encourage them to, to, when they're in this part of God's Word, to appreciate some of the beauty there, just like they would if they were reading a book of poetry, like the Psalms, for instance. Yeah, we actually just started studying the book of Psalms here at, at Grace and Smithville in our adult Bible class, and we were talking ah. about the, the aspect of poetry in the Scriptures. And this is this is poetic as well, and how so often... And I think this is true probably of, of poetry across the board, regardless of culture, but certainly in Hebrew poetry, that they're, it's trying to put an image in your mind. Mm. And, and at multiple times, Jeremiah proves to himself to be a master of this, of putting that image into your mind. And, and here especially, you know, if, if you've ever gone through a drought, which you know, our part of Texas, right now we're in the, the feast part with the rain. It's been raining way too much. A lot of people are starting to, you know, th that thought that we'll always take rain is starting to be challenged in our part of Texas. But there always comes those times afterwards where, you know, it gets dry, dry, dry. And and even here, what Jeremiah is describing, I mean, I, I, I know what I've experienced, but this is, this is even worse than the droughts that I've talked about. He's just painting that vivid of a picture. Hmm. I mean, the doe abandoning her fawn, I, that's a heartbreaking scene. Um, so, yeah, I think the, each verse is just meant to, like, punch you know, and, and hit you with that mental image. I agree. 
Right. Well, and I mean, you know, every everywhere you go, you've got the the nobles who are looking for water. You've got the farmers who are ashamed that that doe in the field forsaking her fawn is, is particularly heartbreaking. And and right now, in, in many places, it is that season where where a doe will have a fawn. And I've seen recently right. on, on social media a lot of these warnings telling you, you know, if you see a fawn lying all by itself, don't go touch it. The mom is around somewhere and will come back to it. The mom's going to look for food or is protecting it so that her scent doesn't attract predators to the newborn fawn. But here in verse five, you know, Jeremiah saying the mom's not coming back to that fawn, yeah. which I mean, that's just a, a heartbreaking thing right there. And even even the wild donkeys, who, who I imagine would be pretty hardy creatures, even they are, are struggling because of this this drought. And so, again, yeah, Jeremiah is just painting this terrible picture of what this drought is like. One of the words that, that comes up that we've seen previously in Jeremiah and in other places is that word for ashamed. The farmers are ashamed. What? Why that? That's a very good question. I noticed that also. Um, you know, I think that's a bit of a foreshadowing because that verse, that word appears twice in a section of um, uh, as we get toward the, the middle here and and the word shame yeah it, it it gives you the hint at least here in the beginning of chapter 14 that there is that this is not natural this is something that is recurrent this is occurring because of our relationship with God yeah I mean I, I obviously this drought is something that did happen. It was a, a very literal drought in the land of Israel. But given the theological connections, you know, to the blessings and curses, as you brought up in Deuteronomy 28, and some other things that Jeremiah has said, I I wonder if there's also, you know, that Jeremiah particularly brings up this drought as a reminder of the spiritual condition in Israel. And one of the verses that, that came to my mind from previously in Jeremiah, back in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, the Lord says, My people have committed two evils, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Again, certainly in chapter 14, we're talking about a literal drought, and the people are lamenting all of the physical malady that they're experiencing because there's no rain. But at the same time, I, I can't help but wonder if Jeremiah is bringing this up here as a reminder to the people, this is what your spiritual condition is like, too, and, and that's the real problem. Indeed. I, oh, I love how Jesus latches on to that living water to tell us about the Holy Spirit in the Gospel of John. Um, and yeah, you built your own cisterns, ones that cannot hold water. So the, God knows that we're thick-headed people, right? So yes, you could do that metaphorically and poetically, Jeremiah, but then God sends the actual drought just so we get it through our thick heads. <laughs> yeah. So in, now in verse 7, we have a bit of a, a a transition. We've got, this is what's happening in the drought. And now we're going to hear Jeremiah and the people cry out to the Lord beginning at verse seven. So this is now Jeremiah 14, verse seven and following. Though our iniquities testify against us, act, O Lord, for your namesake. For our backslidings are many. We have sinned against you. O you hope of Israel, its savior in time of trouble. Why should you be like a stranger in the land? like a traveler who turns aside to tarry for a night. Why should you be like a man confused, like a mighty warrior who cannot save? Yet you, O Lord, are in the midst of us, and we are called by your name. Do not leave us. Right, so those those verses are the, the prayer. 
Pastor Jago, uh, as you consider this prayer, one, I mean, it, you know, it's it's in the first person plural. Our iniquities mm-hmm. testify against us, and so forth. I just given what I've seen from the people of Judah in the Book of Jeremiah so far, it's hard for me to imagine this being used on a large scale within the people of Judah. Although I suppose it's possible. It, it strikes me as, as perhaps a prayer that Jeremiah is praying on behalf of the people. Uh, any thoughts on that? And then more importantly, what's, what's in this prayer that we should notice? Yeah. The, the, thank you for that. Because I'm, I, commentators, I think are evenly divided on whether we hear Jeremiah's voice in these verses and in the prayer at the end as well. Um, and I, I think, Certainly you do, and it seems like a congregational sort of response. And one, yes, I think that makes sense, that he's leading. Um, I noticed that lately you've had some heavy hitters of the Old Testament on your program, like Reed Lessing, who is literally writing the book on Jeremiah now, <laughs> and uh, and that'll be published by CPH soon. Um, so, yeah, I mean, so the, the, he, 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 I'm, I'm a bit humbled by this text because there's a couple of things, especially in this section, that I really, well, I wouldn't say struggle, but I certainly have a lot of questions. Well, sometimes that produces the best sermons, though. When you look at a text and you don't have all the answers and you are in prayer and you're asking God uh, and, and looking toward uh, some commentators for this, too. Um, so here's you know just a couple of things I love. So first of all, the number three again. There's three different words in the confession in verse seven. Uh, our iniquity in, in in the ESV translation, our iniquities and our sins. Now those we understand pretty good, and maybe if you came from a more American Baptist background, you'd you'd hear the word backsliding or Methodist background too, because backsliding is in a lot of popular American sermons, especially in the revival times. Um, Man, backslidings, what a great word. So I looked that one up. Um, And it's something that uh, has a lot of different meanings in the Old Testament, but mostly your, uh, your apostasy, or I like this one, waywardness. So in the, in the Bible, being faithful means that you're walking the right path. I love that image. You know, Christians in the book of Acts are not called Christians right away. They're followers of the way. You know, disciples are walking with Jesus. So I love that image. And so idolatry, the opposite of that, uh, faithlessness, idolatry, moving away from the Lord, that backsliding is like your feet are moving in the wrong direction. You're out of sync. Um, so that's a, that's an interesting image being painted in my mind when I see that. Um, the hope. If I, I'll just Israel, let me just real yeah, quick ahead. there, Pastor Jago, because that word backslidings I do think is important, and maybe backslidings yeah. it it does have a certain connotation I think in English, particularly in a religious context, that that maybe isn't. I don't know if it's it's not that it's not the best, but it's it's perhaps not exactly what Jeremiah is doing in the image, and I I think the as I've as I've been reading through Jeremiah. And I haven't looked at every single Hebrew word, confession, mm-hmm. <laughs> but but in my reading of the commentary, the word that's behind that in Hebrew, which is the Hebrew word for shuv, it's a it's a verb. Mm-hmm. It does mean to turn, and and this is a yeah. really important verb for Jeremiah in general, as to which way the people have turned. Constantly, they can you know they turn away from the Lord. 
the Lord calls them to turn back to him. This, this matter of mm-hmm. which way are you turned, you know, and, and you, the word waywardness, I think very well fits in that same image that this is a, this is a key thing that the people would confess their maybe, and it's not really the best English, I suppose, but their turnings, you know, their, their away turnings. That's the, mm-hmm. that's the picture more than backsliding. It's that they've, Yes. I, when I picture backsliding, I, I think of sort of, you know, you're, you've tried to climb a hill and you, you start to <laughs> fall down. But, but this that, is really yeah. more of a, you know, they've actually turned away from the Lord. And for them to, you know, and again, if this is Jeremiah, you're putting this in the hopes that the people will pick this up. That's what the Lord wants them to confess is that they've actually turned away from them. So that would be a mm-hmm. a pretty big confession on their part. Yeah, I, the Bible is so rich in how many images you put it. I, I latched onto the waywardness because we have feet coming up here in the in chapter fourteen. But the turning is a very biblical word, and in fact, that's the main message, uh, the law message of of Jesus: repent and why the gospel, the kingdom of God, is near. Um, so yeah, in this, in, in, even in here in the Old Testament. Uh, Jeremiah uh, leading this confession of the people, perhaps saying, "Turn, you have, we have turned away, and we are turning back to you." Verse eight, because you are our hope and our savior in the time of trouble, like during this drought. Now, this next section, though, this is what gives me a little agita. The, the questions here: uh, the stranger in the night. Uh, why would you do that? Why would you be like a traveler, like a man confused, a mighty warrior who cannot save? Uh, those rhetorical questions bothered me a little bit, I guess, because it seems you know, like you're challenging God, and it doesn't. It seems a little out of step with the earlier confession that's there. Um, but there are examples of this in the Bible of people having a dialogue with God. I mean, there's Abraham who bargained with God, uh, you know, with the with the city of Sodom, um, and I thought of Moses too. Uh, when he was in dialogue in, in Numbers chapter 14, is saying something essentially like, you know, what would the nations think if you just, just wipe out the uh, people? The Egyptians will hear of it, you know, that you wiped out this people after doing all those awesome signs and wonders to, to free them. It was a challenge to God to be faithful to the covenant promises that he made with the people, even though the people are not being faithful. And it was a reminder of his mercy. So here's my thought about this, and I, I really w- would love to hear what you think about these questions. I, I think that these questions are brought up to remind the, the person saying it, not necessarily God. Uh, God knows what he's all about and, 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 and is faithful and so forth, but this dialogue is probably more for the benefit of the person speaking it. Maybe I'm well off track there, but what do you think? Well, and I, I appreciate that, and I think one of the challenges is, you know, thinking about who is saying these words. So on, on the mm-hmm. one hand, if it's, if it is the people of Judah and Jerusalem asking these questions of God, you know, why would you be like a stranger that that's a, or a traveler who turns aside and the various images that are used, there's, there's four of them there. Why would you be that way? If it's the mm-hmm. people of Judah and Jerusalem asking those questions, there's, there's almost a sort of, you know, a moment where it says like, well, don't you know, because, <laughs> this is, you've you've not kept the covenant, and so of, of course you know. I mean, the the curses of the covenant are coming upon you. So of course that's why. And, and in that sense, they they strike as a bit ironic, I suppose, that mm. the people of Jude and Jerusalem would would ask questions to which the answers ought to be so obvious, especially given the preaching of Jeremiah. On the other hand, if if you see this as a prayer that Jeremiah is composing, and and given you know what you brought up 
particularly with Moses, how, how he, the way I like to think of it is it's holding God to his promises, saying, mm-hmm. saying to God, look, this is who you said you are, but it doesn't look like you're being that. Why not? And, and that, that honest question of, of faith that, that holds God to what he's said. And that's where, I, you know, the very first part of verse eight, you're the hope of Israel. You're the savior in time of trouble. <laughs> What's happening? Why, why isn't that happening? Oh Lord. And, and I, maybe that's, you know, at least as a, a faithful way of considering these, or uh, let me say it this way, mm-hmm. a way of considering these questions coming from faith rather than necessarily unbelief. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like uh, boldness. You yeah. have a boldness because of your faith. Yes, that does make sense. Yeah, I mean, and, and another example of that, I think, you know, I, I wrote down in, in some of my notes, maybe the, the Canaanite woman who, who in uh, Matthew 15 oh. and in the other place, you know, where she, she's kind of challenged by Jesus on, on multiple occasions, and, and he doesn't act like he's going to answer her prayer, at, mm. and she keeps holding him to it. You know, I, that was another example of, of maybe a, a faithful way of, or a way of a faithful person asking questions, something like that. So we'll, we'll come back to that more on the other side of break and continue to, to look at this prayer that Jeremiah offers on behalf of the people. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO, talking Jeremiah chapter 14 with Pastor Andrew Jago. We will be right back. Please stick around. Hi, I'm Pastor Sean Smith, host of Concord Matters, where we seek to be of one mind that is the mind of Christ. Join us as we read through the book of Concord and look at confessional topics as learned guests and lively discussion will lead us to appreciate how the treasures of the Lutheran confessions apply in the 21st century as much as they did in the 16th. So join us every Saturday at 10 a.m. Central on KFUO Radio or on demand through the Concord Matters podcast. Until we convene for Concord again, keep confessing, church. When communism fell in the former Soviet Union, it was an exciting time to share the good news of Jesus Christ with people who had long been denied the faith. This is Reverend Robert Ron, founder of the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. It's been 25 years since LHF began translating and publishing the books of our Lutheran faith for the people of Russia. With your help, LHF continues our work of introducing new believers to the Savior in nearly 90 countries. Visit lhfmissions.org to learn more. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, June 8th. We're studying Jeremiah chapter 14, verses 1 to 22 with Pastor Andrew Jago. He serves at Bethany Lutheran Church in Alexandria, Virginia. Pastor Jago, prior to the break, we were talking about this prayer that's offered in verses 7 through 9, these questions that are asked on the one hand from the people of Judah, sounding a bit presumptuous, from Jeremiah, sounding like a lament, you know, an honest asking of, Lord, are you going to save us? Will you hold to your promises? By the end of the, feel free to offer any further comment on that. By the end of the prayer, there is this note of, there is a note of confidence. You, O Lord, are in the midst of us. We're called by your name. Do not leave us. Any more comments on the this prayer as a whole? Uh, yeah, I mean, that last verse, in the midst of us, that touches on, uh, well, first of all, my brain uh, being Lutheran that I am goes right to the mighty fortress Psalm, Psalm 46. Sure. You know, he's, God is in the midst of us. That's why we will not fear. Um, so, you know, that's, that's certainly a reaction to drought, fear. Uh, and, uh, and so we have the remedy here, which is faith. 
God is in the midst of us is a promise all the way from Exodus and, and even before that. And it's a major motif, I think, in all the Bible, God's presence with his people. You know, there's the, the holy smoke in the tabernacle and in the temple, Solomon's temple, uh, to remind people of God's presence. This is where I have put my name, where, where people will, will pray to me. Um, and God is reminding through the prophets, through his word, and through all those things that happen in the temple and in the prayers of the people, you know, he reminds them of his presence. I will never leave you or abandon you, he says. And I think that's a, that's a, at the, as an, as a, as a prayer goes, um, do not leave us. And, but then the acknowledgement that no, God is always there among his people, even suffering with his people. Uh, that's a, that's a tremendous promise to hold on to at the end of this section. Now the Lord answers in the next two verses. This is Jeremiah 14, verses 10 and 11. Thus says the Lord concerning this people, they have loved to wander thus. They have not restrained their feet. Therefore, the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. The Lord said to me, do not pray for the welfare of this people. Though they fast, I will not hear their cry. And though they offer burnt offering and grain offering, I will not accept them but I will consume them by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. That was actually through verse 12 of the chapter. So, Pastor Jago, the people have prayed, or Jeremiah has prayed for the people, and then the Lord answers, and it's a rather horrifying answer that he gives. Yeah, yeah, that's that's what I picked up on, too. This certainly backs up that Jeremiah is praying with his people, because the Lord then responds and says, don't pray for the people. Yeah. Don't pray for the welfare of this people. Are that connects to Jeremiah's letter to the exiles, you know, pray for the welfare of the city that they're being exiled to. But here, don't pray for the welfare of this people. Um, and why? Verse 10, I think, is, the, is really what connects us to that temple sermon, uh, where God says very similar things about not praying for the people, and I'm not going to hear them when they cry out to me. I'm not going to accept these offerings. Um, Man, that, it, like I said, just horrifying. Just the opposite of what we expect because of God's he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And, you know, but this is this is definitely the, the, the law being proclaimed here that uh, um, God has had enough of their their double stand, their, 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 their duplicity in coming to worship him. Uh, their fake worship, I suppose. And I love the image of feet. <laughs> wandering feet. Uh, Isaiah says, the, oh, blessed are the feet of those who bring good news. In this case, people's feet, they, they can't, they come to the temple uh, in order to, to get their blessing from God, but then they go wander around to these other gods. And, and some of that involves like horrifying practices of the paganite gods, like the pagan gods, like, uh, like child sacrifice. And Jeremiah, you know, singles those things out. When you read that in his book, it's like, oh my goodness. Uh, and then they bow their their head under every every tree, you know, every high hill, mm. um, you know. But then still come to the temple thinking, well, we'll just check we'll just check all the boxes, and then you know we'll be okay with all these gods. Hmm. Yeah, and I mean you you do see the echo of the temple sermon there for sure, as as you said, particularly in verses eleven and and well, I guess twelve especially. You know that that they're going to go through the motions, they'll fast, they'll offer their burnt offerings, but it won't do anything because because they haven't believed the the word of the Lord. And I think that's where, you know, verse 10 certainly is a, a very, it's a very fitting response to the prayer. You know, why are you like this, O Lord? Well, because the people ran away from me. They, they didn't restrain their feet. And and so he's not going to, 
to hear their prayer, which is a terrifying thing. There's also, I, I think, some some irony in all of this, hmm. given that this is happening in the midst of a drought. The Lord says they might fast. Well, right now they're kind of being forced to fast, and, right. and still they're not getting the point. And then if they think the drought is bad, well, the judgment that the Lord promises is going to be even worse. He mentions sword, famine, and pestilence. At, and I mean, again, I think that that points to the the real problem in all of this. As bad as the drought was, the real problem in, in Israel to use the image that, that you're bringing up again and again, is that their feet are walking in the wrong direction. They're not walking toward the Lord. They're walking away from him. Yeah. Interesting. You pointed out irony there. I see that in verse 11, too. The people, the pe- too, the people are, are hungry and they, they don't have enough to consume, but they will be consumed by a sword, mm-hmm. famine, and pestilence. Yeah, I mean, and, and it's it's one of those. I think how did you? It was it's devastating and beautiful at the same time. I think that was yeah. the way you you phrased it earlier. It's I, I don't. It, it's it's quite something to see it there, but it's rather horrifying as to what that's what it's actually talking about. Yeah, what a what an amazing person God called here in the person of Jeremiah. I mean, he's known as the weeping prophet, but um, the way he weeps is so eloquent. <laughs> it's just. It's just, yeah, devastating. It's it's sad and beautiful all at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Now, and, and as you said, you know, what an amazing person he, he calls. You see Jeremiah's response, because now we're, we are going to get words specifically. We know they are from Jeremiah as he continues. And he does, the Lord's told him not to pray. And yet Jeremiah does continue to pray, which I think is, maybe that's the, the connection to the Canaanite woman. Every time that Jesus says something to her that you think is going to, send her away. She keeps praying. And it seems that Jeremiah has a, a similar faith as much as he, you know, we see his moments of doubt and struggle, no doubt, but, but he does continue to bring them to the Lord, which is one of the, the great strengths of Jeremiah is that in the midst of all of this trouble and suffering that he goes through, he keeps coming back to the Lord. So let's see how he does that beginning now in verse 13. Then I said, ah, Lord God, behold, the prophets say to them, You shall not see the sword, nor shall you have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. And the Lord said to me, The prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them or speak to them. They are prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination, and the deceit of their own minds. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who prophesy in my name, although I did not send them, and who say, Sword and famine shall not come upon this land, By sword and famine, those prophets shall be consumed, and the people to whom they prophesy shall be cast out in the streets of Jerusalem, victims of famine and sword, with none to bury them, them, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, for I will pour out their evil upon them. And that was through verse 16. So, Pastor Jagow, we we see here that Jeremiah tells the Lord, "Here's here's what the false prophets are preaching, and they're preaching the the exact opposite of what Jeremiah has just gotten done preaching, mm-hmm. you know, sword, don't worry about that famine. No problem. You've got peace. Cause you are here. And the Lord responds to that here. And, and man, I don't, I did not notice this before you mentioned it, but now that you've mentioned how Jeremiah likes to use the threes, like he does in the book of Lamentations, mm-hmm. I'm starting to see them all over the place. So yeah. I'll, I'll let you point those out. Take us into to this back and forth between the Jeremiah and the Lord. Yeah, so um, the the three there's threefold uh, 
identification here of of what the prophets uh, of the prophets. First of all, they're not they're prophesying lies, uh, and uh, uh, God did not send them. Uh, nor did he command them. <laughs> so it's a it's a threefold, and the repetition I think enhances the fact that these are not the Lord's prophets. These are these are prophet seekers, perhaps a different kind of prophet. Um, Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who prophesy in my name, though I did not send them. You know, then it gets into the uh, into the punishment there. Um, so they were not sent; they were not commanded. God did not speak to them. And what are their their the, the what is the content? It's lies. It is worthless. It's a deceit of their own minds. Now, there's a really good phrase. I think of that as, you know, there's, there's some preachers today that that would fit probably. Uh, <laughs> you know, the people who are just deceived by that, they just, they, I, I forget where I first heard this, but uh, when I hear certain preachers, I say that, uh, you know, they, they graduated from MSU and people look at me and I said, well, they're good at making stuff up. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're not looking at God's word. They're just making stuff up on their own. I like that MSU making stuff up, but I, I think the, the that phrase the deceit of their own minds is is certainly helpful. That yeah. you know, what does my mind want to hear? Well, well, my mind wants to hear what these false prophets have to say. You know, don't don't worry about yeah. God's judgment. You're you're fine. You're you're a Christian. No big deal, right? You if you don't worry about it. And I, I think that fits in very well with what's there in the temple sermon and in plenty of other places in the book of Jeremiah, where it seems that the people are just sort of banking on these outward show of shows of religion. There's the temple. We're in Jerusalem. Got a man from the line of David sitting on the throne. So we're good. Yeah. All the while, just doing whatever they want. And, and Jeremiah calls that what it is. It's just a deceit from your own mind. You didn't get that from God. You got it from yourself, and you're just deceiving yourself by it. Indeed. And then ironically, sword and famine, they're saying, oh, don't worry about it. But that's exactly the punishment for their false prophecy. Right. I mean, and, and that's, you know, again, that that beautiful, devastating matter of, you know, the irony that comes back upon mm. them that... I will pour out their evil upon them by the end of that section, that, that all of these yeah. things you're saying won't come. That is going to come, and it's going to come upon you first. And, and I mean, you know, notice I, that very last phrase really struck me. I will pour out their evil upon them. This is what, this is their evil simply coming back upon them. They've, they're getting what they they've earned they're getting in fact what they've they've asked for they don't want the goodness from the lord and so they're god's going to give them the evil that that they already have yeah the the poured out i mean that's reminiscent of another part of jeremiah jeremiah tells us about god's cup of wrath yeah. uh, that is poured out upon his people upon the nations uh for their sin and we Christians, I, there was one Holy Week I, I preached on God's cup of wrath on Good Friday, but then pointed out on Monday, Thursday, the night before, the, the cup of blessing that we receive, the blood of Jesus poured out for us that covers our sins. There's, that, that could be a good gospel handle, as one of my professors would, would have said, you know, that, uh, that word poured out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even in the midst of all of this, this is a lot of judgment, obviously. But there are those yeah. those gospel handles, and the as you said, which is coming up later in the book of Jeremiah, this cup of God's wrath that gets poured out, and then how Jesus picks up that language in in his own ministry, particularly in the Garden of Gethsemane. I mean, it, there is a you know where ultimately does the evil 
of all these false prophets, the evil of Judah and Jerusalem, the evil that you and I commit still today, all of that ultimately gets poured out upon Jesus, which Indeed. N- none of that is, of course, to, to excuse our sin or to, you know, sort of try to lighten the blow, but rather to just overwhelm us with the grace of God that this is what we deserve here in verses in these verses. And yet God places what we deserve upon his own son. That's the I mean, you know, talk about those questions that the people were asking earlier and, and the confidence that they have that the Lord is the Savior in time of trouble, the one who's in the midst of us, who won't leave us. All of that comes to fulfillment ultimately in Jesus. Indeed. Yeah. So let's let's see then. The, the Lord is going to respond again to Jeremiah. I'll read the rest of the text now. We're picking up again in verse 17. You shall say to them this word, let my eyes run down with tears night and day and let them not cease. For the virgin daughter of my people is shattered with a great wound, with a very grievous blow. If I go out into the field, behold, those pierced by the sword. And if I enter the city, behold, the diseases of famine. For both prophet and priest ply their trade through the land and have no knowledge. Have you utterly rejected Judah? Does your soul loathe Zion? Why have you struck us down so that there is no healing for us? We looked for peace, but no good came for a time of healing. But behold, terror. We acknowledge our wickedness, O Lord, and the iniquity of our fathers, for we have sinned against you. Do not spurn us for your name's sake. Do not dishonor your glorious throne. Remember and do not break your covenant with us. Are there any among the false gods of the nations that can bring rain? Or can the heavens give showers? Are you not he, O Lord, our God? We set our hope on you, for you do all these things. That's the rest of Jeremiah chapter 14. I suppose there's, there's about two sections here, Pastor Jago. You've got verses 17 and 18, the Lord giving a word to Jeremiah to preach, and then 19 through the end of the chapter, we have another confession, another prayer. So let's start with, with 17 and 18. What is it the Lord says, here's the word, Jeremiah. What does the Lord give Jeremiah to speak? Well, remember, previously the Lord said, do not pray for this people. It seems that that means that the the judgment that God proclaims is imminent, and it's not going to change. Uh, so the, the eyes are going to run with tears day and night. Um, the daughter of my people is shattered with a grievous wound. Uh, so this is, this is, again, you know, terrible. And But the way in which... Jeremiah portrays it, his words are just beautiful, uh, beautiful and tragic at the same time. Um, prophet and priest ply their trade through the land and have no knowledge. It gets the, back to that duplicity of the people. The, there's, there's a lot of false religion, and where does that come from? That comes from the leaders who are deceiving the people. God acknowledges that, but that is uh, that there's still going to be this punishment, not only on them, but on the entire nation as well, if they do not heed Jeremiah's word. Um, so there is, but there is going to be a punishment that that, that cup is going to be poured out. <laughs> there is a punishment that, that is imminent that is coming. Um, but nonetheless, nonetheless, uh, wake up, <laughs> listen, and uh, and look to the Lord. Uh, remember these things about His mercy, about His presence, and um, and about how He is he is there with you. And don't forget that. Uh, turn your, you still have to turn around. You, your feet still have to go in a different direction. And, and we know from 
elsewhere in the book of Jeremiah, that that's precisely the reason the word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah is for that very purpose. The Lord wants his people to turn. He wants to show mercy to them. And and that's and it's made, not made explicit in this text, but we know that from, from the rest of this book and from the rest of Scripture, that the reason the Lord preaches judgment like this is precisely so that his people will turn from their evil that's causing the judgment, and then, then he'll turn from, from that disaster and will show mercy to them. And, and that's the whole point. And that's why he's he's preaching this, or he gives Jeremiah to preach this. Now, in verses 19 through the end of the chapter, we get another confession prayer, similar to what we encountered in verses 7 to 9, at least in, in terms of, of what's there and what's going on, mm-hmm. but perhaps a, a little bit different in character. What's, what's there in this final section of our text? Well, I noticed in verse 19, I, for some reason, these questions did not strike me as odd as the earlier ones, the challenges, the faithful challenges, we'll say. I like that. Um, you, you know, have you utterly rejected Judah? And the answer to that is no. There will be a remnant. Uh, does your soul loathe Zion? No, God still, there's, there's still a love for the people, even though they have turned, us away, turned away from the Lord. Um, and then these questions, why have you struck us down? I love the word healing there. Um, that connected me to the book of Ecclesiastes, which I notice you're using in a lot of in the titles for all these uh, episodes on Jeremiah. Um, in this case, I was thinking of uh, the verse in chapter 3, Ecclesiastes, a time to heal and a time to wound. The people are looking for a time to heal, but there's a whole lot more wounding uh, that happens. Sometimes the wound uh, leads to a healing and scar tissue, maybe maybe leading to something that makes you stronger uh, as a result. Uh, when you prune back, uh, just to use a different metaphor, you prune uh, a shrub or you prune, uh, you know, in, in your garden, uh, you know, the, the trimming back sometimes. Well, I, actually, you know, our neighbor has a fig tree, and I noticed that one year they really trimmed it back because it was really getting out of control. Uh, but this year, holy moly, uh, we've got, and I love it because some of the branches grow on our side of the fence. <laughs> so we're, it looks like the neighbors are going to share some of their figs with us. Um, you know, it grew back stronger. Uh, so there's the, in the midst of, Jeremiah is like a lot of judgment. This is true, not only of this chapter, but the whole book. But there are these hints and this hope, uh, you know, it occurs in, in, in a, a group of chapters. Sometimes it just occurs in a little verse, um, you know, the, but, the, but you, you have that hope that there will be healing. Verse 19 doesn't take us there yet. It says we look for healing, but we have terror. Um, again, the word choice, it just paints a vivid image in our heads. Yeah, um, let me before before we go too far from from those questions cuz I think you you bring yeah. up some really good points there that you know I mean particularly with that word healing it it brought to my mind the verse from previously in Jeremiah at the very end of chapter uh, chapter 8 Jeremiah asked is there no balm in Gilead is there no yeah. physician there you know I mean so Jeremiah has has already prayed about where is your healing lord and and i you know i mean he's he's still looking for it obviously and then what you were saying about you know sometimes the the wound ends up being a part of the healing i think that fits in very well with what what's going to happen in the book of jeremiah and you've already brought up the letter to the exiles coming in chapter 29 one of the one of the great mysteries of the book of jeremiah is that through the exile through that very horrific event, the Lord is going to bring healing to his people. He, he's going to bring people to repentance and faith 
in him again. And it's, I mean, it, later we're going to hear Jeremiah preach things that no doubt earned him the, the scorn of the people when he says, you know, if you stay here in Jerusalem, you're going to die. If mm. you surrender to Babylon, you're going to be, you're going to live. I mean, and that's, that's a big part of what happens in that letter to the exiles where, where Jeremiah writes to the people and says, pray for that city because there's where the Lord's yeah. going to give you your peace. And so I, I think all that is to say, I think what you're saying about the, sometimes this wound ends up being a part of the healing. That's very often how the Lord works is that he takes us mm. through death and into life. I mean, that's what, that's what baptism is. He, he kills the old Adam so that he can raise the new man in us. Indeed. You know, that's a, it, that, that, that you said great mystery. I mean, our faith is full of those kinds of mysteries and paradoxes, you know, that it's where God, you know, the, the, the last shall be first, the first shall be last, uh, the, the first shall be last, the last shall be first. And by dying to our sin, we find life and life eternal. So keep keep taking us through this last confession and, and prayer. In verse 20, Pastor Jago, I, I see again the, the threefold, you know, you've got wickedness, iniquity, sin. And sin, uh, yeah. what, what else do we see here in, in the final verses? Well, I think, you know, after the, you know, the, the confession is, again, a bold confession, and the questions are bold questions. These are, I believe, said in faith, you know, that, the, 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 you know, will God... Uh, completely wiped them out because of the false prophets. I think there seems to be some hope here that God uh, will hear the people, uh, will hear this confession, even after uh, they have turned their hearts away because of the, the false religion going on. Do not spurn us for your name's sake. Oh, and here again, the threefold. Um, God's name, God's throne, and God's covenant in verse 21. Those are all invoked uh, to say, you know, to God, don't, don't forget us, but uh, remember all the things you have promised through these visible things that we see, the means of, that we, if you will. Uh, we come back to the drought and the rain at the end and a beautiful tying together, you know, a bookend from the very first part of the chapter. And a reminder, I mean, this is not only like the prophet Elijah challenging the prophets of Baal or the prophet Hosea laying down the truth in the midst of all the Baal worship in the northern kingdom of Israel. Um, you know, this is again, you know, who is the one who brings you the rain? And I love the image of rain, how that image of blessing is in creation. The rain falls on the good and the bad alike, but it has a spiritual dimension as well. The people, after they confess their sin, there, I think Psalm 32 says something about you know, our bones being dried up, you know, when we keep our sin inside of us. But then God sends the living water, the Holy Spirit, to refresh our spirits, just as he sends the rain to refresh a thirsty land. Our, our soul, which is dry when we turn away from the Lord, can be filled again by God's Holy Spirit. And we can have that time of refreshing. Verse 22 connects us to that hope. Yeah, I, I, the threefold, your name, your throne, your covenant in verse 21, I think is a, another mm -hmm. important point to bring out that, that Jeremiah here bases his prayer not on who the people are, but upon who mm -hmm. God is. You know, I mean, what a, what a fantastic way to pray that, you know, Lord, and, and in fact, he's already admitted who the people are, you know, the, the iniquity, the, let's see, wickedness, iniquity, and sin what's the response to that? Well, it's not anything that I can do about it, but rather it, it's who God is, who is what he's promised to me. You know, I mean, your name, your throne, your covenant, Lord, do this for your own sake, which I mean, certainly there's, there's lots of examples of, of prayers like that 
elsewhere in the, the scriptures. I think Moses prays like that. You know, I mean, so, so to, to base the prayer upon who God is, and, and as you said, what is that? That ends up doing something for me as I pray it. The Lord, through that kind mm-hmm. of prayer, you know, he draws me closer to himself so that I would, very by that very act of praying, begin to trust in him and not in my own ability because my own ability has got me wickedness, iniquity, and sin. It's only in the Lord that there's any sort of hope for me at all. Pastor, Pastor well, Jago, we got about... Go ahead. We, just as a reminder, we got about two minutes on the morning, okay? So final thoughts. Yes, hope, because Jeremiah is notorious for being the weeping prophet. That's how he's portrayed <laughs> in the Sistine Chapel. But he's ultimately a prophet of hope. The, the judgment is coming, and you know there's some terrible things that are going to that happen, but we keep our hope. And Jeremiah puts his focus on God and his faithfulness and his covenant. We sang this past Sunday, God of grace and God of glory on your people, pour your power, crown your ancient church's story, bring its bud to glorious power, grant us wisdom, grant us courage for the facing of this hour. We are assured that we have that through, <laughs> because, you know, even through pandemics, <laughs> plagues, droughts, you name it, um, you know, we, we approach these times of, uh, uh, could be times of judgment, but we do it in faith that nothing will ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We always have that hope. Pastor Jago, we, we still actually have about two minutes now. I, I was doing my math oh. wrong as I was looking at the clock. So <laughs> sometimes it's just too much. All right, I'll speak a little slower then. <laughs> well, so, no, that's okay. But I mean, just as, as you reflect on this text, and we've as there's a lot of judgment, and you've already started to do this, but just, again, help us to see from this text, how does this text serve as a part of the full biblical witness to point us to Christ crucified and risen as our Savior? Yes, well, it comes down to that hope um, and, and truth. I think truth is another major theme through this text. I mean, Jeremiah makes it clear, the Lord knows when you're faking it. And the false worship was the people went out and lied and, and you know, were stealing, were committing adultery, even murder, and not to mention worshiping all these other false gods. But, uh, ten, but, but thinking the outward shows of religion you know, would, would help them escape judgment. Uh, we can't fake it with the Lord of hosts, but he sends us the truth, the way, the life. Uh, who who has not only taken that cup of wrath, that judgment for all of our sins, but given it gives us through His Holy Spirit the strength. Uh, to, we would not have any strength within us to turn and to hope in God if not for the Holy Spirit living in us. Um, and Jeremiah, like, the whole book, gives us that hope that God is listening, He is here, uh, and He'll see us even through the, the the most terrible times in our lives. Pastor Andrew Jago is the pastor at Bethany Lutheran Church in Alexandria, Virginia, helping us today with Jeremiah chapter 14, verses 1 to 22. Pastor Jago, thanks for being our guest today. It was my extreme pleasure, and God's blessings to you and this radio ministry. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about the book of Jeremiah, comments on this series, we'd love to hear from you. Send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. Use the app and the open mic feature there to send up to a 60-second message to us. Let us know what you're thinking. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.